Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast, a podcast all about leadership, change, and personal growth. The goal? To help you lead like never before in your church or in your business. And now, your host, Carrie Newhoff. Well, hey, everyone. Welcome to episode 158 of the podcast. My name is Carrie Newhoff, and I hope our time together today helps you lead like never before. Well, if you're a regular listener, and many of you are, you probably know Kara Powell by now. She's been on before. She will definitely be on again. And so many of us are trying to crack the code of like, how do you reach young adults? And I don't think anybody really is doing more research on that than Kara Powell. And she's back on the podcast with some fresh insights and thinking and a brand new assessment tool on, um, to, well, basically to see how your church is doing when it comes to reaching young adults. Plus, I sit down and talk with her as an academic, somebody who leads a whole department and institute, really, at a major university, a mom, an international speaker, and an author to figure out how she gets it all done. Like, wouldn't you love to know the answer to that question? So that's my conversation with Kara Powell. It's also a really exciting day today because today is the day that Breaking 200 Without Breaking You releases. That's my brand new online course designed to help church leaders who lead smaller churches, which is about 85% of everybody listening to this podcast, break through the 200 attendance barrier. Did you know that that is a barrier that 85% of churches never seem to get past? And I had to go through it as a leader when I started out in ministry. We now lead a church of 1,200, but I started with a church of like six people at one church, 14 at the second, and the mega church I served had 23 people at it. So I am very familiar with the struggles and the issues and the challenges of stuck churches or dying churches or churches that are growing but just can't seem to get past that 200 barrier. Well, the course is open today, and you can check it all out at breaking200withoutbreakingyou.com. So why the without breaking you part? Well, because I know so many leaders almost break trying to break the 200 barrier. It's exhausting, and it doesn't need to be. And so I want to give you and your team the resources and the training that you need to break that barrier as painlessly as you can, because I think we're all committed to the same goal, which is simply this. We want to reach more people and reach the potential of your church. So I'd love you to go and check that out. It's all at breaking200withoutbreakingyou.com. And uh, there's some free bonuses that we're going to throw in just because it's launch week. So I'd love for you to be among the first to check that out. Also, um, I know a lot of you are probably trying to train volunteers. Do you know that the average church only trains about 60% of its volunteers And did you know that trainedup.church can help you grow that to like 100%? They've got clients who are now training 100% of their volunteers, which is really cool. So Trained Up has some pre-built video courses. They've got a growing library of pre-built video courses that are available to you and to your team to help you get started. And you know how long they are? They're like less than a minute. It's crazy. So in October... Next month, they are expanding their library to include leadership development, Bible training resources, and so much more. Trained Up is growing really fast right now. They've actually got hundreds of churches who are jumping on board with them. And and here's what they'd like to do for you. How about a free demo? Um, They would love to just sit down and give you a 15-minute demonstration of what they can do. They can do that absolutely for free. So just go to trainedup.church, book your demo. They love to talk individually with leaders and they'd love to get you uh, a free demonstration uh, this month. So why don't you do that? 
And then, uh, hey, if you are struggling with your church being stuck, have you checked out the Future Forward Conference yet? In Pittsburgh, I mean the 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 story. Not only are eighty five percent of all churches small, but the vast majority are stuck or dying. That's over ninety five percent. And in two thousand and three, that's exactly where Amplify Church was. It was aging. It was down to two hundred people from a thousand. It was stuck. And Lee Kreitzer went in and, by the grace of God, engineered a massive turnaround to the point where today they see over two thousand worship. Average age is thirty five. And they're doing something for the very first time called the Future Forward Conference. It's all about creating ministry for um, the next generation when you're an existing church. It's happening October 24th through 26th. It is a great investment for you and your team. And if you want to know more, Lee was actually a guest of my podcast on episode 101. So you can hear his whole story, but don't miss out on the conference. So go to futureforwardconference.com, register today before it's too late, bring your whole team. And guess what? The Orange Tour is going to be there the day after his conference wraps up. So if you're heading to Orange Tour Pittsburgh, make sure you go a few days early, October 24th to 26th for the Future Forward Conference. And uh, hey, if you're anywhere near Pittsburgh, it is worth the trip in and maybe even worth flying across the country for. So make sure you check that out, futureforwardconference.com. And in the meantime, man, lots to celebrate today. Let's dive into my conversation with Kara Powell. Kara, it's so good to have you back on the podcast. Welcome back. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here with you, Carrie. Well, you know, a year ago, we talked about the release of Growing Young, and we'll dive into that as well as some other stuff this time. But that was your most recent book. But guess what? Here we are a year later, and a lot of church leaders are still worried about teenagers and young people, maybe even more worried than they were a year ago. Yeah. Um, a lot of young adults and teens also seem worried. Seem worried. I mean, we live in a, in a pretty anxious culture and uh, I think a difficult time. Maybe a lot of us are concerned about it. What are some of the major stresses young people today face that say their parents never did? Yeah, you know, and I'm a parent myself. My kids yeah. are 17, um, al- almost 15 and 11. And so I'm very much living this at home as well as with our team here at the Fuller Youth Institute. Yeah. Um, I think this is a really stressful time for kids and unique um, because teenagers and young adults, what we think at FYI is that there's a different sense of time frame operating now. And let me explain what hmm. I mean. Um, some of the terms that we banter around here at our offices at Fuller Seminary is that for young people, 14 is the new 24. Uh, when oh, I look at wow. my 14 year old and what she's exposed to socially and through technology, I mean, she is dealing with questions and issues that many of us who are older didn't deal with until we were in our 20s. So on the one hand, there's more adult pressure on our teenagers and young adults today. So so 14 is the new 24. But, mm. but here's the flip to that is that also 28 is the new 18. Um, and, and, and here's what I mean by that. And some of your listeners who are working with young adults or parenting young adults, perhaps they've experienced this firsthand that, that young adults are turning the traditional corners that have marked adulthood later. And this is, you know, census data that is showing this, they're getting married five years later, having babies five years later, financially independent five years later, finishing school five year, five or more years later. And so there's this really odd dynamic for young people today. On one hand, 14th and 24, their their timeline, their engagement with culture is sped up. But on the other hand, 
adolescence is extending so that a lot of young adults are experiencing that 28 is the new 18. So that's kind of a herky-jerky experience for young people themselves, as well as those of us adults who, who love and serve young people. Oh, yeah. You know what? I haven't heard anyone articulate it that way, but it completely resonates with me. 14 is a new 24. Can you give me or us one or two examples of what a 14-year-old today would be dealing with that maybe a 24-year-old would have been dealing with a decade or two ago? Like what are yeah. what are some of those issues that all of a sudden, you know, hey, you hit in the, you know, in your 20s that now you're dealing with. And I take it a lot of that is cell phone, right? A lot of that is access to information. So what what's an example? Yeah, let me give you a couple that that relate to technology. I mean, I love that my kids are uh, more familiar with what's going on in the world. Um, they yeah. know more about natural disasters, poverty, injustices, and, and I love that they're exposed to more of that. And at the same time, that can be overwhelming for young people. Yeah. And so, you know, they're just so much more aware of sin and struggle um, locally and globally, which, again, can be a great catalyst for them to be involved in, in justice right. work, be overwhelming. And then the other thing is there's just so much pressure to live life, um, <laughs> to live life publicly via social media. Mm -hmm. So I even think about, you know, my son getting ready to ask somebody to homecoming. And, you know, when I when I was a teenager asking somebody to a dance, I mean, it was typically the male who did it. And all he had to do was summon up and summon up enough courage to ask a female to a dance. Well, now it's not just that, but it has to be Pinterest worthy. You know, there has yeah. to be at the very least flowers involved and, you know, often a video, often a sign and, you know, and, and poster and and so much more elaborate. And so all of a sudden life is supposed to be lived publicly. And that just puts, puts more pressure on kids to um, to pretend that everything's happy and great and that they're living life at this kind of exponential level. Yeah. And that delayed adolescence, right back to the beginning of this podcast, I think it was episode six, I had Ted Cunningham on and we talked all about that. But I think you're right. I mean, I can think of some 28-year-olds and I look at their life and there's no kids. I mean, maybe there's a dog in the picture. Yeah. And it really does resemble, even if they're working in the marketplace, like, you know, they're going to concerts, going to shows, having fun, really enjoying life. Um, and do you think this, the reality we're in actually increases anxieties, anxiety rather for, for teens and young people? You know, Carrie, as somebody who loves research, I always try to make it clear um, when I have an answer grounded in research. And what I'm going to say next only is barely grounded in research. Okay. But I do think that today's young people are more anxious, busy, and stressed than most previous generations. Um, and and so, which, which actually creates an opportunity for those of us who are parents and those of us who are leaders and, and want to get to know and, and love young people. Um, that in the midst of their anxiety, busyness, and stress, there's often an openness because they want relief. They want help. Mm. And so, you know, I, I'm kind of an optimist. And so while I'm uh, concerned by what young people experience, I also think it opens up some doors of opportunity for caring adults to really enter into the life of a young person. Right. And a lot of people seem mystified as to how to do that. I think you've got parents listening, you've got church leaders listening, and uh, a lot of church leaders actually are parents, so sometimes yep. you put the parent hat on, sometimes you put the church leader hat on, and yep. sometimes you just put the concerned citizen hat on. Why, in in light of the fact that young people seem to be open to mentorship and conversation, 
why do you think so many church leaders still seem mystified at like, yeah. we just can't reach young adults? Like yeah. this is a huge gap in yeah. most churches. Why? I, I think you're right. Leaders are well-intentioned and motivated. Um, if I had to pick one obstacle that hinders churches from engaging young people well, it's that we're using antiquated ministry models. Um, probably, hmm. we're probably perpetuating what worked for us when we were okay. teenagers or young adults. Um, and on the one hand, you know, Scripture gives some absolutely timeless principles of discipleship and what it means to be the church. I, I love the Bible and believe it's absolutely timeless. But on the other hand, we're always needing to contextualize Scripture's ideas and principles. And sometimes the way that we're contextualizing them really reflect more the 1980s or 90s than you know now 2017. So what would be an example of something that worked a generation ago that doesn't work anymore? Yeah, a decade or two ago, production was really important with yeah. young people. And flash and, you know, lights and smoke machines, and, or I guess it would be smog machines, whatever. A machine. Yeah, I, I know what you mean. Oh, you're in California. It's a smog machine. Smog I'm machine, sure. yeah. Where I'm sure I that's what it is. Smog machine. Other parts of the world, it might be a smoke machine. Um, and having, you know, a super tight band and super tight transitions and, and really excellent production was a value. And we've seen some churches that that do that and are effectively engaging young people but that's not what's most important with young people today they care mm. less about production and more about relationship more about authenticity and so for those of us who you know we loved excellent production uh, a decade or two ago we have to kind of shelve that preference ourselves and and really empathize and put our put ourselves in the shoes of young people today Okay, so let's jump in there, Kara. Last year, you put out a best-selling book titled Growing Young, um, and you unveiled some research about what's actually connecting with young people and what's not. And that's episode 106 for anybody who wants to look it up. And we'll do a really, you know, we do a deep dive into that. But just highlight and recap for us what some of those trends were. Yeah, well, let me just say, I love uh, the church globally and I love what God's doing in and through the church. And yet the reality of what's happening in churches is somewhat disconcerting. Uh, the average church is shrinking. Church attendance is declining. Um, and not only that, but churches are getting older. Uh, 18 mm -hmm. to 29 year olds, they make up 17 percent of the population here in the U.S., but they're only 10 percent of church attenders. So almost half. Like, yeah. did, did people hear that? In other words, they're 50% less represented than they should be. I, I, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say, there are a lot of churches, I wonder if that's a skewed thing. You know, in other words, there are some churches that are crushing it with young adults yep. and then others that aren't. So I can imagine a lot of leaders listening right now, Kara, who would say, I would love 10% of our population yeah. to be young yeah, adults. Is that right. true? Yeah, 10% would be a goal, exactly. Yeah, it would be a goal. <laughs> like we, we'd, we'd throw a party if we hit 10%, man. Yeah, well, and you're right. There are amazing churches that are crushing it with young people. And so we decided as a team, especially Jake Mulder and Brad Griffin and myself, mm -hmm. that we wanted to study those bright spots in the midst of the bare spots. And so we worked with denominational leaders. We worked with people from Catalyst and Orange and the Willow Creek Association to identify really some of our country's most amazing, what we call exemplary churches when it comes to ministry with 15 to 29 year olds. Um, you know, I was thinking about one this morning of uh, one of the churches that I got to visit. And this church 
15 years ago was about to shut its doors. It had aged, it mm. had shrunk, it was down to 30, 40 people. They made wow. some key decisions, and now it's a church of 1,500, 1,000 of whom are under 30. Um, that wow. was Yeah, that was one of the more dramatic turnarounds that we saw. The more common rule of thumb was kind of step-by-step incremental effectiveness with young people. Um, but it just goes to show that, you know, even a, a church that is on the verge of closing its doors, you just never know what, what God can do. And so, you know, the church with the dramatic turnaround, as well as the other 249 congregations that were Protestant, Roman Catholic, evangelical mainline, really broad swath of denomination and non-denomination mm-hmm. were represented. Um, we we spent three years trying to figure out what's the secret sauce, what drives these churches. And um, and we identified six core commitments. One of them we've already touched on, and that is the importance of relationship. But we also were identified, we're able to, to unpack, you know, what makes a leader most effective with young people today? What kind of teaching is most effective with young people today? How do you need to prioritize young people? What does service and, and neighboring well mm-hmm. look like with young people today? And so you know, these lessons that we learned from these 250 churches that are growing young, the good news is we've seen in the last year that they're relevant to a church of really any size, any complexion. Uh, it's never too late to start taking baby steps or large steps to be more effective with young people. Yeah, and, and it doesn't take hundreds of thousands of dollars, Right. 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 Oh, yeah. A lot. Most. Well, the, by far, the vast majority of churches we looked at were on a very shoestring budget, um, and, and yet they they had an internal commitment that that was more important than even the budget that they spent. So, give us one or two examples of practically what a church would do. I mean, one of the phrases you talk about, you use, is "warm is the new cool," yeah. right? So, yeah. this whole like you don't need fancy production. And I think a lot of churches, they try to do production, but they don't have the budget or the people to do it really, really well. Yeah. And they think, oh, we'll never reach young people because we're sort of in that no man's land, that middle ground. Yeah. What are some things, speak to those church leaders and say, well, you know, it's okay to have really good production. It's okay not to have it. What yeah. do you have instead? Yeah. You know, one of the things that was interesting to us is is when it comes to neighboring well and serving um, we thought the churches that we studied were doing a phenomenal job in reaching out to their community. Some were really focused on their own literal neighborhood. Others were thinking more nationally or even globally. You know, the, the focus of, of their service and justice work varied, but what was common is their commitment to it. And so, you know, what we as researchers, when we walked into these churches, the pre-work we had done, we're thinking, gosh, these churches are doing great work. But when we ask young people themselves, what do you wish your church was doing more of? The number one answer is they wanted more opportunities to serve. So, really? I mean, yeah. So it just goes to show, you know, how hungry young people are as they're in, in a quest to understand their own purpose and identity, how service can be a part of that. And especially for, for young adults, you know, post 18, that college age or that emerging adult how how their vocational calling can be a part of how they make a difference. Is that serving in the church or outside the church or both? Both, both. They yeah. were served both inside or outside the church. And, you know, similarly, when it came to their understanding of their vocation, for that, that young adult who feels called to be a teacher, how can those teaching gifts be used either inside or outside of the church to make a difference, a, a kingdom difference? For that young person who feels called to be an architect or an accountant, or a stay-at-home parent, or whatever it might be, 
I mean, we found that in the midst of the five-year delay in young people figuring out their vocation that we talked about earlier, um, the most creative, effective, growing young churches were really journeying with young people, mentoring them, connecting them with other mentors. So um, they were seeing young people use their gifts and explore their passions in in ways that our found our team found remarkable. Hmm. So so really, it's as simple as giving them meaningful service opportunities inside and outside the church. Yep, it's building, yep. and you talk about serving intergenerationally with them. In other words, don't just give them a job, give them a mentor, give somebody who might be a stage ahead of them, who can build into them, get to know them, have coffee with them, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. And, and that touches on, Carrie, one of the other core commitments for us, and that is when it came to leadership, we found a pretty unique type of leadership worked with young people. Um, you know, when we started our research, people would say to us, oh, you know, don't you have to be a really hip leader? Don't you have to drive a motorcycle and wear skinny jeans and all that to be effective with young people? And we certainly had leaders in our study who who represent that somewhat stereotype. And we're doing great work with young people. But the vast majority of the leaders in our in these amazing churches, they weren't like that. But they demonstrated what we came to call keychain leadership. These were leaders who were quick to hand keys over to young people and let them um, really explore their passions, both inside and outside of the church. And so, you know, a lot of times we as leaders were afraid that young people are going to mess up or maybe even more prevalently, they're going to do things differently than we've done them. Yeah. (laughs) And so there's a fear of loss of control and a fear of change. But um, we found these churches were looking at their individual young people and and asking themselves, what's the next step for this person to hand over the keys? You know, a lot of times we look at the passion and enthusiasm of young people as a problem. And what what these churches found Mm. was young people's passion and enthusiasm. It wasn't a problem. It was their church's solution. (laughs) That's so good. Yeah. What what was the most surprising finding in the study Mm. for you? Well, may I I point to two surprises? You may. Absolutely. Great. Great. Um, one relates to what I just said that, you know, we, the purpose of our research was to look at how amazing churches are impacting young people. And we certainly found that they are. Um, but while that was the initial purpose of our research, a wonderful byproduct is we found how these young people are also impacting their churches, how they're giving uh, a spirit of more vitality, more innovation, more creativity, I mean, one of the churches in our study said this directly, and many of them certainly felt this way, that without young people, their church would shut down. Hmm. So just the way that young people are infusing energy into congregations. So that would be one. The second one was the amazing um, variety in churches. This was surprising to me. You know, I I was kind of afraid that we were going to end up with a bunch of large, pretty homogeneous, maybe Caucasian churches. And there's nothing wrong with that. I've been on staff at churches like that. Um, But what we found is that God is working in churches of all sizes, of all ethnicities. Half the churches in our sample were not predominantly white. Um, And so, you know, the the spirit is is at work across the board. And it it was really an honor to peer into Latino churches, African-American churches, multicultural churches, and come to understand how they were being shaped by young people and shaping young people. Yeah, so big and small. um, Literally, I remember your research, it it looks like the church. I mean, there is renewal in every pocket. 
Can we go back to that church that went from 30 to like 1500 or whatever, that turnaround church? Yeah. What were some of the things it did? I mean, it's on its deathbed. Yeah. And all of a sudden it's vibrant. And what percent are between, you know, under 30? It's crazy. Uh, Two thirds, a thousand of the 1500 are. Yeah. Nuts. Okay. So what, what are some of the things they did? Yep. You know, it started with leadership. And um, when, when I, when we started the study, as much as I love leadership, part of me didn't want leadership to be the first step because I love the priesthood of all believers. I love the idea of bottom up change, but I was really wrong um, for, for, as we looked at the most common progression, and this was certainly true of um, this church, St. John's, it started with leadership and it started with a leader who came in and was a keychain leader. And, you know, the pastor, when young people would come to him with ideas, he was always looking for ways to hand keys over to them. So yeah. so that was really fundamental. Um, this pastor also did a great job giving the older members of the congregation an ability to empathize with young people. And this is another one of our core commitments. You know, it's so easy for those of us who are over 30 to judge those of us who are under 30 yeah. And, you know, when when the older members of the congregation would come to the pastor and say uh, things like, I mean, I talked to a woman, Gladys, during the course of our research, who was probably 60, had been at St. John's her whole life. And she really struggled when young people started coming, largely because of Pastor Rick's leadership. And, you know, she said, I would try to go connect with young people and I'd walk up to them. And all of a sudden, you know, they had been standing in a circle and talking and I walk up to them. And they go radio silent. Yeah. You know, they're not comfortable with me. And, you know, probably many of us have had that experience. But she talked to Pastor Rick about it. And Pastor Rick helped her understand what those young people are going through, their quest for belonging. Pastor Rick also helped Gladys serve alongside young people. Um, hmm. And that mutual service and, and actually developing a real relationship versus just trying to talk to somebody in the church lobby, that was a turning point. Um, another aspect that St. John's did that we haven't touched on yet in this podcast was their teaching. They were ruthless about teaching about Jesus. Mm. Um, and in the midst of us as communicators getting a little sidetracked, maybe teaching more about kind of Christian culture than who Jesus was and what Jesus did. Yeah. This church avoided that trap. And, you know, Jesus is magnetic to young people. Jesus is magnetic to young people. In fact, one of the young men that we interviewed from St. John's, um, he was steeped in Islam and Mm. he was actually leading the Muslim Student Association at a nearby university. And through a friend, he came to St. John's. um, And the first time he came to St. John's uh, for the church service, he said, I walked away totally confused. Um, this, he went back though. And he said, the second time I came to St. John's, I decided to follow Jesus. Um, wow. and it says Jesus was presented so very clearly without, um, without softening Jesus's message, but just the radicalness of Jesus's message. So I, mean, I could go on and on about that, that church, but those are just a handful of the things that, that, that were the catalysts for that church's ability to grow young. Well, I'm going to assume with a name like St. John's, too, that wasn't exactly some suburban church plant of a mega church, right? Right, like, right. Yeah, it was a, a very traditional uh, tall steeple church um, and located right in the middle of a major Midwest city. And, um, and, and its turnaround was amazing. 
That's incredible. And you know, I hear that again and again, that the more you preach Christ, the more you just make Jesus the center. I mean, you know, he really is who he says he is and, uh, and Christ-centered preaching. To me as a preacher, that's a really good challenge because sometimes we get away from the basics, right? Sometimes yep. you think I've been doing this so long, I got to say something new. No, yep. your job is maybe to say something old in a, in a way that connects with the people yeah. who, yeah, who very, are in your very midst. Well said. Yeah, yeah, very well said. Well, um, if engaging young people is possible for all church leaders and all churches, why do you think so many churches and denominations are not good at it? <laughs> what what are what are they missing? Like for the yeah. leaders who who are saying, "Man, we just we just can't," and yeah. uh, our denomination doesn't. Like, what what is the deal? I think all of us are prone to believe myths about what it takes to engage young people, and then hmm. especially for factors that are kind of outside our control, those then it's easy for them to become excuses for us um, right. and kind of let ourselves off the hook. So one of the initial early surprises, and we cover this in chapter one of Growing Young, was not only did we identify the six core commitments of what these churches all had, but we identified 10 things that you don't need to have in order to be effective with young people. Um, and, you know, we've already talked about you don't have to be a particular size. We have churches under 100 and over 10,000. You don't have to be in a particular location. We mm. have churches that were urban, suburban, and rural. The one, the one caveat to that is when it came to that college age, that kind of 18 to 23, 19 to 23, the churches that were located near colleges tended to be more effective with college students. So there you go. Four years of research. Those are the kinds of things. That we <laughs> so that's the one thing. Um, you know, Carrie, you made the good point that you don't have to have a huge budget. What you need to do is think about how you allocate your budget. So, right. you know, what percent is going to young people? Um, you don't have to be a certain age. We had churches under five years and over a hundred years. You don't have to have a particular worship style. And, you know, in our Growing Young book, we probably spent more time on this paragraph or two than any other paragraphs because we wanted to make sure we were not misunderstood. That most of the 250 churches we studied, they did have some elements of contemporary or or they often use the term modern worship because, let's be honest, contemporary worship is a term we've been yeah. using since the 80s. So, exactly. <laughs> it's kind of like a Christian Abba is a lot of how we tend to think of contemporary <laughs> So, you know, they would use the term modern worship and most of the, most if not, I won't say all, but almost all of the churches we studied offered a portion of their um, worship offerings in a more modern style, but they also sprinkled in more high liturgical style, more classical, et cetera. So, right. um, so let's not think that if we just remove the keyboard and the organ and replace it with an acoustic guitar, then that's going to engage young people. Um, sure. Acoustic worship was really common, but it was something deeper than just the musical instruments that was key to connecting yeah. with young people. That, that I think, is really liberating. And yet a lot of people are going to wonder, okay, where do I even start? So oh, a lot of church leaders who are like, okay, we're, you know, in the first few minutes of this race or, uh, oh. yeah, we're all over 60. Where where do we start? Yep. Um the beauty of our research is not only did we track with churches in the midst of our study, but we've been doing year-long cohorts, growing young cohorts with churches who are walking through our research. And, um, and so we, they're like labs for us where we get to learn okay. as they make, take steps forward. 
And one of the key principles um, that's been helpful for churches in making change is actually a quote from my friend and colleague here at Fuller, Scott Cormode. And Scott says, leadership begins with listening. Leadership begins with listening. And so regardless of what age you are, uh, we as leaders, we're often not good at listening. We're used to talking. We're used to (laughs) sharing vision and not so good at listening. Um, Jake Mulder, one of the co-authors of Growing Young, he was having a fascinating conversation with a, a large, very sophisticated church that wanted to move forward in their ministry with young adults. And so they came to Jake and said, okay, here are our ideas. Here's what we think we need to do. Here's the new Bible study. Here's the new outreach, et cetera. And Jake asked them, have you talked to any young adults about this? And the leaders gathered around the table, looked kind of sheepishly at each other. And sure enough, they hadn't talked to any young adults about it. (laughs) So, you know, really, I would say before any of us make any huge plans, we need to understand the pulse of our overall congregation, especially our teenagers and our young adults. Well, your team has got a tool that is coming out this month. Can you tell us a little bit uh, about, like, it's a it's a um, an assessment tool, right? Yeah. Which I love. I love, like, assessment tools because then I can go in and go, okay, well, this is a really nice theory, but how yeah. does this apply to me? Yep. Yeah, and, you know, we, we developed the assessment because we heard from so many leaders that while they appreciated the book, Um, and they appreciated knowing the six core commitments, they weren't sure how to move forward. They weren't sure how to do that listening. And so we've created an amazing growing young assessment that lets any leader systematically survey their congregation, figuring out where do they stand on the six core commitments. Um, And we've spent really the last year working on this. And part of what I love about being at Fuller is We have such amazing faculty. And so especially some of our psychology faculty, I mean, they have they have um, lent us their most heavy duty research brains um, to figure out how to make this so accurate and so practical. And so what a leader can do is can use this assessment to see how their entire congregation is feeling uh, about their overall congregation and how they're doing with young people. And then what we what we can do through the assessment is we'll give every church who takes it a comprehensive um, 30-page report. And, you know, I've been looking over reports from churches, and it's pretty spectacular because we identify specific areas of strength, opportunities for growth. And, and very helpful for churches is we can break out uh, respondents by things like age by things like involvement in church, by gender. So for instance, one church that took the assessment, um, they had some ideas about how their young people were uh, feeling about the church and how empowered they felt and involved they felt. And it was only when they pulled out and were able to splice out, okay, here's how those under 30 feel versus here's how those over 31 feel. Like the lines on the graph were very, very different. Wow. And so, you know, these leaders, most of whom were over 30, uh, they were reading their own autobiography into what young people were experiencing. And so it's really because leaders and denominations are saying, we want to understand our churches better. We want a roadmap to move forward. That's why we've developed this assessment so that leaders can take the pulse of their congregation and then get practical steps to move forward. Oh, that's interesting. So it sounds like it'll reveal blind spots and uh, really test assumptions. So tell us a little bit, like, where do, where do people find that assessment? Yeah, yeah. 
So the best place to go is to our, our overall website, fulleryouthinstitute.org slash assessment. That's Fuller Youth Institute, all spelled out, dot org slash assessment. And we'll link to this in the show notes too, just so people know. And, you know, as, as a leader, I've, I've been on pastoral team long term at, at two churches and currently volunteer at, at the second of those churches. You know, I was always wanting to set a strategic plan and I just didn't know how. And it's been exciting to see churches take the assessment, have their whole congregation do it. And then they have they have the material they need to make steps forward in a strategic plan. Like one church, um, they they thought that they were doing a really good job and were very open to young people leading and serving and, and building relationships with young people. And so they took the assessment and the assessment confirmed that that was absolutely the case. This church mm-hmm. was open to young people. But what the assessment revealed is that while it was open to young people, they were really doing a poor job actually training young people in how to <laughs> and how to serve. And so, you know, it was all heart, but not a lot of skill development. And so, you know, thanks to the assessment, this church is saying, Part of our strategic plan for the next year is we've got to actually train our young people instead of motivate them. So that's the kind of insight available at um, fulleryouthinstitute.org slash assessment. Now, have you got a discount? I think you had mentioned ahead of time for the listeners of this podcast, which is really cool. Totally. Yeah. And it's a special, really unique discount. Carrie, we are fans of yours and fans of this tribe and I'm a regular listener to your podcast myself. And so we wanted to give your listeners a way to make it even easier and more affordable for them to buy the assessment. And so the assessment usually starts for the church at churchwide assessment at uh, only $300. And then we also, if that's, if that's a little bit too steep, we also have an individual assessment and a team assessment. So there's three different kinds for the overall congregation, for the team and for the individual our team is saying for for all of your listeners, we're offering a 30% discount on oh, all three assessment types, all three of them. So when you go to fullyyouthinstitute.org slash assessment, just enter Carrie, C-A-R-E-Y, in all caps. Oh. There we go. It's named after you. We, there you we go. Decided, we decided doing your last name would be way too confusing. Uh, so, there would be here. one person who would get that yeah. discount. Yeah. That would yeah, be I, it. And they live yeah, in I, Holland. So. I've known you. For like four years, and I now can spell your name, Carrie. So you're <laughs> Thank you, Kara. That's a sign of a real friend. Totally. That is totally. actually very generous, and I want I want people to hear that too. Like, if you brought in this is research. This is not like some little tool you find on Facebook. This is you know PhD backed and everything. And I understand the value of that. That's huge. Thank you. So thirty percent off, and uh, just use C A R E Y when yes. you go to check out. Right. Yep. Until October nineteenth. So okay. for a month from when this podcast is initially aired in September, we are thrilled to have your listeners connect with this research and resource cool. and move forward and growing young. Well, that's awesome. And we'll, again, have that in the show notes, which uh, I always get questions. Where are your show notes? Because nobody can spell Carrie Newhoff. It's leadlikeneverbefore.com. Uh, search Kara Powell and uh, you'll find the show notes for this episode and uh, everything will be in there as well. So that's really cool. Well, Kara, while I got you, we got a few more minutes. And this is yeah. really helpful because this is a question churches are going to be working on for literally years to come. And you've done important research. But you are a researcher and a mom and an academic and a speaker 
and you're involved at your church as a volunteer. And one of the questions, I mean, this is your third time on the podcast. I don't think I've asked you, but like, how do you get it all done? I mean, we have a lot of leaders and a lot of women listening to this podcast who are like, wow, that is, that's quite an accomplishment. And I'm just always curious. I mean, I've done a whole deconstruction with our mutual friend, Frank Beeler, and with many other guests about, you know, how do you get it all done? So how do you juggling all of these roles, what are, what are some things that have helped you manage to keep it all going? Yep. Well, first off, I don't get it all done. So, <laughs> uh, so let me just correct that, that uh, myth a little bit. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm a pretty organized person. I'm pretty good at multitasking. Um, we have a great team here at FYI and my husband and my mom who lives 10 minutes from us. I mean, we're, the three of us are really a team in our family. Um, so, 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 but even with all that, I don't get it all done. Um, and, and so I think if I could share just a couple ideas, one is I'm regularly, really weekly asking myself, what's most important now? Right. What is most important now? And sometimes it's a book deadline. Other times it's making sure I get enough time with our 11 year old. And so yeah. I, I think multiple roles as a parent, as a leader, uh, boss, et cetera. I'm, I'm trying to be agile and really respond to the needs that I see. And, and even I would say, you know, kind of the, the spirits leading in what's important that week. Um, you know, and I would say a second thing that's so essential is our family, we really live life in community. And so we're carpooling with friends, we're helping each other out, we're bouncing ideas off each other. And so um, I can't imagine trying to do what I do in isolation. There's really a team. There's a village of people that are journeying through life with the Powell family. And um, I would want it no other way. So hmm. so what are some things you say you don't get it all done? <laughs> There's, yeah. We all have lists of things we wish we can do that we're yeah. just like, well, I can't do it right now, or this one's this one's got to move off the list, or hey, in five years when my kids aren't home anymore, or ten years when my kids aren't home, what are some things that you're not doing that you wish you could be doing? Yeah, you know, my husband and I are really good at short connection times, so yeah. we, you know, five or ten minutes in the morning. Um, he's got a forty-five minute commute. And so we usually talk on his drive home. We usually spend our half, our, the last half hour of our days together. Um, so Dave and I are really good at connecting in short snippets. We're not doing the extended dates um, that we maybe did before <laughs> we had kids. Right, so, right. Yeah, as I look at my friends who are empty nesters, uh, I, I think that that'll, that'll kind of reappear in the schedule a, a little bit more consistently when that happens. But for Dave and me, even though we're not getting the weekly date and all that sort of thing, it's it's about still staying in touch with each other. And so those yeah. five or ten minute uh, connection point times, you know, flirting by text and all that, mm. like that's that's part of the rhythms of our marriage that are helping it thrive, even when we're not, you know, at candlelight dinners, holding hands for three hours on a Tuesday night. So, <laughs> You know, it's really, it's kind of fun, Kara, because you've had dinner with both my wife, Tony, and I before, and you know Tony, and we've been empty nesters for a couple years now, and I was saying to her literally last night on our way to get takeout pizza, because we live in the country, so we got to drive, right? So nobody delivers where I live, so we had to drive into town, 
And I said to her, I said, isn't this the weirdest thing? Like, I'm really excited about being in the car with you going to get takeout pizza. And I said, I never get tired of you. And she said, I never get tired of you. I said, that's miraculous, actually, that you never get tired of me. But like, it is it is really great to know that that is around the corner. Yeah. Um, what are some of the disciplines and the rhythms you have? Because I know a lot of people who want to write, you actually write and you publish, like your yeah. books get done. And you were yeah. telling me ahead of time, you got three more books in the hopper yeah. for the next few years. So, you know, sure, in your day job, you're an academic, you can get some writing time. But I'm going to guess that most of a lot of your writing doesn't just happen. Yeah. Um, because, you know, on on academic time. So yeah. how do you how do you make time for all of that? Yeah. You know, I've figured out a routine in my week. And I know you're a big believer in this, Carrie. And, yeah. and you've helped me understand that each of us have better and worse times to do certain tasks. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I figured out the rhythms not only of myself, but here at Fuller Seminary. And so for me, like Monday through Wednesday, those are my meeting days. And so okay. they're pretty much chock full meeting after meeting, you know, every hour, every half hour, every 45 minutes, et cetera, with some, a few breaks for email here and there. Um, but then Thursday and Friday, I try to block and leave more open. Um, I often work from home on those days. Those are my research days. Those are my writing days. Those are my strategic thinking days, just kind right. of praying about where God is leading, FYI, et cetera. So, so I've really had to think about the different purpose of different days um, and even when I do my best work, like even Thursday and Friday, I'm I'm much more of a morning person. And yeah. so I try to do my more important jobs that are going to take the most mental energy um, in the morning. And then in the right. afternoon, I move to those, you know, maybe hour, hour, hour projects, whereas the morning is like the three to five hour project that I'm working mm-hmm. on. And so it's understanding myself and actually blocking my calendar. I mean, I, I write or I type in my calendar you know, work from home, write from home, strategic planning, et cetera, in Thursday and Friday um, so that so that I make sure I don't accidentally schedule meetings. Or if I do schedule a meeting, it, it's just super strategic yeah. and it couldn't happen Monday through Wednesday. So that kind of time blocking has been essential for me in making sure I, I get the most important things done um, as well as the urgent things. So Right. And those are those are high impact leader principles that you and I've talked about that our tribe yeah. has talked about in the high impact leader course. And it's just moving to a fixed calendar. And it's amazing how much that that clarifies and realizing, I guess, in your case, like me, I'm a morning person. Writing at 9 p.m. does not produce what writing at 9 a.m. produces. True for you? For me, nothing at 9 p.m. produces. Yeah. <laughs> 9 a.m. Bowl of chips. That would be about it. You know, bag yeah. of chips. That's what that's what 9 p.m. produces. Yeah, yeah, I'm very much the same way. And, you know, even thinking about weekend rhythms. So one right. of my priorities is connecting with each of my kids over the weekend. So okay. how do you um, do that? Because that um, was my next question. You have yeah. three kids. That's a lot of yeah. kids. What do you how do you connect with them? <laughs> it is a lot of kids. Um, it varies weekend weekend and kid by kid. But um, our two oldest play volleyball. And so a lot of times it's an hour in the car as we're driving to a mm. volleyball tournament. Um, it's taking a walk around the block a couple times with my 11 year old. It's taking one of them out for coffee with my son. He loves sports. I like sports. So we might record a, something on in sports and then sit for an hour and, and watch something on sports. Fast forward through commercials and, and we still talk during the game. 
So with each kid, it's, it's a little different and it varies by weekend, but I'm, I'm always trying to figure out how can I connect with my kid's heart um, in, in the weekend. And even during the days, I mean, as my kids have gotten older, Carrie, dinner together as a family has gotten more complicated. Um, yeah. They have sports practice, church, worship practice, et cetera, mm-hmm. that often intrudes in, in the evenings. So I have shifted um, that I now cook breakfast for our family. Oh, cool. um, which, yeah, I mean, Dave and I have very much parented with the philosophy of if your kid can do something, they should do something. So our kids have been making their breakfast since like first grade, you know, bagel, right. cereal, et cetera. But I realized, especially with my driving son, that often the 10 or 15 minutes in the morning when he's eating, it's it's our best time. And so I'm now, you know, this morning it was French toast. Sometimes it's still bagels, but I'm the one who makes it. And, and, you know, we, we sit and have breakfast together and, um, and I just treasure those times. Although I, I got to admit when I first started cooking breakfast for the kids, cause I haven't done it during the week, especially for years, my kids were like, mom, is something wrong? Are we in trouble? Like, they didn't know. <laughs> uh, but it's just my way to make sure every day, especially with Nathan, our driver, that I get 10 or 15 minutes in addition to that important weekend time. You have to fight for it and you have to interrupt your rhythm. You know, I'm recording this. We're recording this morning for you in California, middle of the day for me here on the Eastern East Coast. But, you know, one of my sons is coming home in an hour and we're going to hang out in the afternoon and we may take the boat out. And, you know, it's that flexibility as your kids get older to just decide that this relationship is worth fighting for, investing in, spending time for, which also means you probably have a list of things you're not doing right now. Like you must, yeah. you must have gotten good at saying no, because my guess is you get way more requests to speak places than you can accommodate. You yeah. probably get invited to write academic papers that you yeah. are like, okay, no, I got book contracts or here. How do you, like, do you say no a lot? And then how does that work out for you? Yeah, I'm glad you asked. Um, and I, I do say no more than I say yes. Mm. And there's a principle from the book Essentialism, which I think you and I oh, yeah. talked. We're love fans that of book. it. Yeah, I love the book too. And Greg McEwen. And and it, he doesn't actually say this in the book, but I've kind of adapted it. And it's this. If it's not a definite yes, it's a no. If right. it's not a definite yes, it's a no. Because because <sighs> there's some kind of yeses mm-hmm. that I've said yes to over the years, personally and in my work. And then I end up regretting it. And there's an opportunity cost because I've said yes to something that seemed pretty good. But then something better came along that I couldn't say yes to because I had already said yes. And now you're booked. So, yeah, yep. Exactly. Totally. And so, you know, our team, we really live by that. In fact, just last week, we had a hard decision to make about whether or not to continue one of the ministries we offer. And I said, you know, this doesn't feel like a definite yes. And so it, it needs to be a no. And the team nodded and agreed. Um, and, you know, we, we, we use the same principle with our family, especially as Dave and I are invited to volunteer and help out with things. Right. There's some things that are definite yeses, but there's a lot where I just go, no, that's not a definite yes. So I'm going to put it in the no column. So, so that principle, I mean, honestly, Carrie, probably more than any other principle in the last two or three years, that principle has really helped me both with my family and with our work here at FYI. That has helped me a lot. And you know what? Uh, Greg McEwen, great book. We'll link to it in the show notes. I just looked it up. Episode 122 of this podcast. I sat down and talked to Greg about his book. So uh, you can listen back to that. And it's been a game changer for me too. And I don't know whether I made this up or whether this is actually in the book. I read it a couple of years ago. 
But this idea that are you 100% yes or like, I think he says it has to be 90% yes. And there are so many things in my life that are 80%. Like, yeah. it's not a bad decision. Right. It's not, not a bad opportunity. It's not, it, it's, a, it's even beyond a good opportunity. It's a very good opportunity. Yep. But it is, a, is it a great opportunity? Is it yep. a nine out of 10? Is it an absolute yes? Yep. That's, that's really, really hard. And yeah. I guess that'll be true when you're an empty nester too. Yeah, right? probably, probably. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, it, I, I still feel like I have training wheels when it comes to living this out, but, um, but it's, it, like I said, it's helped me more than anything else. And I, I love what you're saying, nine out of 10, because sometimes we're 10 out of 10, but maybe those times are rare, but I yeah. think we know the difference between being seven out of 10 or not and nine out of 10. Yep. And so if we can say no to the seven out of 10, trusting that God will prompt somebody else to do that, that God is bigger than needing to rely on us and our calendar and our skills, then that brings a, a bigger kingdom mentality also to the to the no's that we do say. I think you're right. I think there's a FOMO, a fear of missing out too. And yep. I've found that sometimes when I've said no to something I really wanted to do, God hands it back or something else back that's better down the road. I don't know yep. why. Yeah. What what is final almost final question for you? What is the most challenging aspect for you right now in terms of just keeping up with everything that you do at home, at work, as an academic, as a speaker, uh, leading the Fuller Youth Institute? <laughs> Honestly, the first thing that comes to mind is email. Um, and I, <laughs> yes, I, I know. I know. It's evil. I, I get a lot of email. And, um, and I, I like a, an inbox that is, is as empty as possible. I gave up trying to have empty as an actual goal, but with as few emails as possible. And so I have no problem with boundaries on phone calls and with boundaries on texts. I mean, I, I can wait a day before responding to a text if it's not urgent, but there's something about email that just gets at me. And so I've talked to a lot of other strategic leaders who I respect and everybody handles email differently. Um, so I think I'm coming to terms with the email doesn't compete with my job. It is part of my job. You know, it, right. it, it right. is part of my job, but making sure that I'm focusing on the email that only Kara can do. And, right. you know, just today I got a question from a wonderful leader and, you know, probably six months ago, I would have spent 15 minutes replying to that leader. Instead, I forwarded it to another team member who will give a better answer than me um, and who has more time in their actual job portfolio to be responding to leaders' emails. And so Matthew's going to respond to that leader. In fact, already has. He let me know. He yeah. That leader. And so, so you know, I, I think coming to terms with email is not evil. It's just a matter of figuring out what is it that only Kara can do. And what can somebody on my team do better than I can do? That's a really good team, or a really good, um, uh, you know, advice. And for me too, I blogged on it this summer, but I've finally given it mostly over to my team because yeah. I was finding it was consuming. I mean, it could be—I I agree, it's part of everyone's job, but it could just eat you alive. And I never understood the people who are like, "What do you mean you have people who answer your email?" And now I'm like, "Oh, I totally get that now." But it allows me to do stuff like this and have meaningful yeah. conversations and show up prepared rather than overwhelmed and constantly behind. Yep, that that's really, really good. Um, Kara, this has been so helpful. People are going to want to connect with you personally. Where's the easiest place to find you online, social and otherwise? 
Well, my Twitter handle is at KPowellFYI. That's at K-P-O-W-E-L-L-F-Y-I. I'm also on Facebook, and you can access me and our team through our website, FullerYouthInstitute.org. And if you're interested in the assessment, again, that's FullerYouthInstitute.org slash assessment. And use that awesome carry bonus code to get yeah, 30% off. First name only. You don't have to worry about the last <laughs> name. First name only, C-A-R-E-Y, and get 30% off. Uh, until October 19th, 2017. And this fall, those of you on the Orange Tour, you'll see, I think we're in some of the same cities yeah. with Reggie Joyner and some yeah. of Andy Stanley's uh, yeah. cities as well. It's going to be a lot of fun. So you get a chance. It's, one, one of the things I love most about Orange Tour is a chance to really actually connect with people. It's yeah. big, but it's not so big that it's not like Orange Conference where there's 8,000 people and you'll never see anybody, but you actually get to hang out with people and yep. looking forward yep. to that this fall. And uh, Carrie, at Cities at Tour and at so many events, people come up to me and say, I heard you on Carrie Newhoff's podcast. And oh, there you go. Great, we have a great conversation. So I'd love to meet any of you who are at Tour or um, anything else I'm speaking at in the, near in the near future. Kara, thanks again. And thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you, Carrie. Well, I love talking to Kara, don't you? <laughs> I love her answer. How do you get it all done? Well, Carrie, the truth is, I don't. <laughs> don't you just love that level of candor? It's awesome. But she does get an awful lot done. And I thought that was really helpful advice too. And make sure you check out the assessment that she's offering to podcast listeners. All the details are in the show notes. You can go to leadlikeneverbefore.com, click on blog. You'll see the show notes there or in the little search button. If you're listening later, just search Kara's name. You'll see all the episodes that she has been on. And next week, we are back with a brand new guest. I'm so excited. We got, we got a good lineup coming up. Do you know that we have got Henry Cloud, the renowned psychologist, is going to be on. Uh, we've got Ron Edmondson coming up, Carlos Whitaker, Jared Wilson, Erwin McManus, Mark Batterson, Allison Evans, and so many more. I'm, I'm really pumped for this fall's lineup. Uh, but next week, it's my good friend who is a return guest as well. He helped us get started at episode 10. Ron Edmondson, just so practical in his advice. Here's an excerpt from my interview with him coming up next week. He was literally showing people information that was false and uh, or using it falsely. Sure. And so I challenged him and said, you know, this is what I hear. In fact, I'm suspecting you've got that piece of paper right now. And uh, when I did, man, it uh, it changed the conversation, <laughs> you know, I mean, because he couldn't defend it anymore. He became uh, and and and. Uh, Again, a, a very confidential story, but he, he started to cry. And subscribers get that all for free. If you haven't subscribed yet, would you do that? Here's the reality. I only listen to podcasts I subscribe to. So hit a quick subscribe. It's absolutely free. And then when we drop this in your inbox next Tuesday, boom, away you go. Make sure you check out Breaking200WithoutBreakingYou.com on today, the launch day. That course, by the way, will be available indefinitely. So we're not going to just, you know, offer it for a week and then it's going to go away. But I want you to check it out while we've got some launch bonuses uh, accompanying it today and this week. And um, then next week, we're back with a fresh episode. Check out the good folks at futureforwardconference.com and trainedup.church. And we're back next week with something brand new. We'll see you then. And I hope our time together today has helped you lead like never before. You've been listening to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. Join us next time for more insights on leadership, change, and personal growth to help you lead like never before.